welcome the president to the stage, John MacArthur. Well, this, uh, we're going to start things off today. The, the theme has been Christ is all. And as you heard in Bianca's testimony, she connected that to her life. And as you hear that phrase, Christ is all, and, and you think about all the times you've preached Christ, what maybe passage or thought immediately comes to mind when you hear that? Uh, I don't know if I could uh, isolate it to one given passage. Um, you know, maybe the fact that... Um, in him, Colossians, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Um, Second Corinthians, where Paul says that the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And since everything is related to God by him, through him, for him, that's true of Christ. Um, I think... The proper way to understand the Bible is to understand that the, that the Scripture is about Christ. It is about God incarnate providing redemption. You have the Old Testament, the anticipation of Christ. You have the Gospels, the incarnation. You have the epistles, the explanation. You have the book of Revelation, the glorification but it's all Christ. Uh, even our Lord in Luke 24, <clears throat> when he was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and later that same resurrection night, went to the Old Testament and spoke to them of all the things concerning himself in the Holy Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, and the Holy Writings, which are the three sections of the Old Testament. So <clears throat> the whole of the Bible is the story of the eternal God, the Creator, redeeming uh, a race of human beings to gather into glory for his own joy and honor forever. So the Bible is all about Christ. It's, it, it, that's the focal point of all of Scripture. In that you, in the last four decades, have preached in the Gospels more than anywhere else down at Grace Community <coughs> Church, preached now through John, you almost did it the second time. So just focusing on Christ in the Gospels, what was the motive you had for giving so much attention to Christ in the Gospels, you know, spending so much time preaching through there versus other parts of the Bible? Well, you know, I, I go back to sort of my spiritual hero, the Apostle Paul. I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Um, uh, maybe backing up a little bit on the historical side, but the most riveting, compelling person who ever lived in this world is Jesus Christ by an incomprehensibly wide margin Nobody comes close to him, no one. Um, because he is the incarnate God, everything about him is compelling. The, the prophecies concerning him are compelling. The, the narrative is compelling. Every incident in his life is compelling. The explanation of his life in the epistles is compelling. The proclamation of his life in Acts is compelling. The glorification in Revelation is compelling. There is no person of equal um, identification. No one even comes remotely close. And um, if you're faithful to the scripture, you are preaching Christ. You don't need to read him in everywhere, but he is either, he is either the subject or there's a direct line from the subject to him in, in scripture. Um, so 
when I came out of seminary, I felt like as a minister of the new covenant, which Paul says he's a minister of the new covenant, the mysteries that were hidden in the past are now revealed. That's the New Testament. I needed to preach Christ. I was going to have to be a preacher of the New Testament. And then uh, uh, my goal was to, uh, to find a place where I could stay for a long time so I could preach through the whole New Testament. Uh, that, that, that was a little bit whimsical on my part. My dad pastored probably 10 churches. How do you find a place that will tolerate you for this long? Um, I'm, you know, I'm like the poor. They always have me with them. Um, I never leave, and it's like a death sentence. Uh, I mean, imagine I'm preaching to the third generation of families, same family. So to, to, to have a place like that, and I always wanted that. I sought that. I looked back in history to, to men who were identified with a place and stayed there. That was the only way I would ever get through the whole New Testament, because if I went somewhere else, I'd be tempted to use what I'd already prepared. Uh, but if I had to preach to the same people every week for my, essentially my whole life, I'd have to come up with something new every week, and that would drive me. Um, so I decided to go through the New Testament, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, which, which I did. And um, people ask me, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, I did preach some of the books of the Old Testament. I preached through Daniel because it was difficult, and I like to do things that are difficult. I preached through the Old Testament in a general sense up to about Psalm 78. Did some preaching in the Minor Prophets, uh, a little bit in Isaiah. But I wanted the full New Covenant revelation of Christ. And it wasn't so much that I wanted to preach it as I wanted to know it. Preaching has never been the, preaching has never been the primary thing with me. Preaching is kind of the secondary thing to me. The primary thing to me is to know God and is to know Christ and to know the word. That's where the joy comes. Preaching is the work. The joy is the preparation, the study, the hours and hours and years and years uh, deep down in the text of Scripture coming to know Christ. That uh, if I never preached a sermon, I wouldn't change my life because knowing Christ, what else? Paul says that I may know him. But I may know him. There's no um, greater thing. So going through the New Testament, then, and, and I think it's important to know this, if you know the revelation of Christ in the New Testament, you can find him in the Old Testament. It's like, where's Waldo? If you don't know what Waldo looks like, you're going to have a hard time finding him. But if you know what he looks like, you can find him if you look long enough. But it's the same thing with the Old Testament. If, if you don't know Christ, Fully. You, you're not going to find him in the Old Testament everywhere he is. But if you know him in the New Testament, you're going to find him in the Old. So for us, New Covenant believers in the church, the challenge is to know the Christ, the God incarnate revealed in the New Testament, and then we'll see him everywhere in the Old Testament. And as I think about you describing the amount of time you're saying, studying, thinking about Christ, writing about Christ, preaching about Christ, that's thousands and thousands of hours doing that. So I know this, again, like asking the first question, what's the best passage? That was kind of, for me, uh, selfish because I was hoping you were just going to say one and that would be the next passage I would preach here next week. <laughs> so then I could really feel like I hit exactly what you would want. But this next question is somewhat selfish, but maybe curious for a student who they, they look at your life and say, man, all that time you've spent with Christ in study, in preaching and writing. If you were to be able to summarize it and say that on a personal level, as you've done that study and done that thinking and preaching and writing, what's the most amazing thing to you about Christ? 
the, the, the thing that, that, that comes across to me predominantly is the fact of his absolute perfection and the, the fact that the scripture presents him in an incontrovertibly perfect way. In other words, there's no conflict with what the prophet said and what he is. No conflict with what he is and what he said or what he is and what he did. It is the perfection of Christ. It is incomprehensible that human beings could devise such a person. We can't. From the perspective of corrupt minds, we could never come up with someone like him. This is to say that he is who he says he is. So it, it is his, his amazing perfection. I sit back all the time uh, in my study, and I, I just, uh, you, you probably would understand this, but the, the richest times of prayer for me and the, and the most exhilarating times of worship to me are when I'm alone in the, in the Word and contemplating the glories of Christ, and I just have to push back, and, uh, and I, I get overwhelmed with the perfection. When, when I was reading just last week that um, Andy Stanley, who's a pretty popular contemporary preacher, uh, recently came out and said, uh, we, um, we've got to get away from the Bible. Uh, we've got to get away from, uh, from the authority of Scripture. Uh, we've got to stop saying, the Bible tells me so. Um, that tells me um, a lot about him. That tells me that there is a profound spiritual emptiness that um, is a huge part of his life. The, if you don't find your highest joy and most supreme worship inside the pages of Scripture where God is so gloriously revealed, I'm not sure you should be a minister. In fact, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't. That's really serious if you're denying the role of Scripture. Um, yeah, I think it's the, just the perfection of Christ, whether you're talking about Genesis 3.15 or Revelation 22 and everything in between. Um, he, he is just relentlessly awesome. There's never, in, in all these many, many years, never has there been anything revealed about him that seemed to me to be inconsistent or couldn't be true. Everything revealed in Scripture about him is completely coherent and truthful and consistent. It's that perfection that is so overwhelming to me. Every answer he gives, everything he does, every presentation of him prophetically and even going into the future, every explanation of his life by the epistles and the writers of the epistles, it all comes together in an absolutely perfect divine way without any error or any mistake. It's the perfection. And as you were mentioning, all that you're seeing in your study, you're sitting there in the Word. Mm -hmm. It's moving you not just to say, oh, that's going to be great for me to preach on Sunday, but first of all, God's using that to move in your yeah. own heart. The Holy Spirit's inducing worship in you. How, how does a student borrow the template maybe you have for your study to say, any, that's not just for you. Any believer that loves Christ, has the Holy Spirit in them, can do that in the sense of looking at the Word of God and it, it speaking to them and them seeing Christ in all of Scripture. As you think about your time 
from college on, maybe what were some principles of your devotional life that you followed even since then? Before it was about sermons, it was about studying the Bible, it was about knowing Christ, that you would say, hey, to cultivate a walk with Christ for these students, what are some principles you would share to have a rich devotional life walking with Christ in the Word? First of all, uh, I, I would say I have never, in the study of Scripture, thought about the preaching of it. I don't ever think about that. When I'm preparing a sermon, I never think about how something would preach. I never, I don't stand in front of a mirror, you know, like this. How, the, how am I going to come across? I'm going to stop that, doing never, that then. I've been working on my mirror preaching. <laughs> I, never think about, I never think about preaching. All I think about is truth, and this experience of the truth ignites my heart. It just sets me on fire. I understand Jeremiah, fire in my bones. By the time I get to the pulpit, I've got this raging reality burning in my heart, and I, I just need to open my mouth, and, and it comes out. Uh, it, sometimes it comes out worse than other times, but uh, it's never about the sermon. It's always about the spiritual reality. Mm. So I think that's, that's the wonderful truth that's available to all of us, mm -hmm. to all of us. Um, I mean, the, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're listening to the Apostle Paul and he's saying, be diligent to prove yourselves. Workmen need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, he is essentially saying that if, if you don't handle the scripture accurately, you ought to be ashamed. Well, there are a lot of people running around who ought to be ashamed because they, they handle it inaccurately. But I think for all of us as believers, Jesus said, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Um, the Bible is inexhaustible. You might wonder why it had to be so long when it is repetitive. There are only so many subjects, and they keep getting repeated in different ways. But it's this inexhaustible, lifelong treasure for the believer's own spiritual benefit. The preaching of it is sort of secondary. Um, what, what started me down the path of uh, a deeper understanding of Scripture was, was reading repetitiously. In other words, not just reading a little bit of scripture, but reading over and over and over. So I started with 1 John, um, and I thought, you know, I'm, I, if I want to really understand the Bible, I've got to read it enough so that it really starts to make sense. And since it's not a collection of verses that are isolated, it's a collection of books that have a beginning and an end and a middle, and they're going somewhere, I need to read them as books. So I started with 1 John, and I thought, I'm going to read 1 John every day for 30 days. And then at the end of 30 days, I said, I'm going to do it for 60 days. And at the end of 60 days, I said, I'm going to do it for 90 days. Mm -hmm. By the end of the 90 days in 1 John, I knew 1 John cold. Mm -hmm. I, could, I, could, I, I almost could memorize it in Greek. You know, that's, you, you, it gets embedded. It gets embedded. I have the same problem a lot. <laughs> yeah. It gets it's in embedded. Hebrew, though. I'm doing it in You're Hebrew. You're in Hebrew, yeah. yeah, okay. Aramaic. But the point, the point is, what happens is, somebody says to you, where, where in the Bible does it say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us? Oh, that's, that's 1 John chapter 1, uh, right-hand page, left-hand column, halfway down. Right? You start to visualize your Bible. If you do that, do it in the same Bible all the time, and you will literally visualize your Bible, and that's how you access everything. So you don't become a concordance cripple. You, you literally visualize your Bible. And as you begin to read 1 John over and over, you, you begin to realize that this is cohesive, this is going somewhere, 
Then I went to the Gospel of John, and I did the same thing in the Gospel of John because I knew they were connected, same writer. And, um, and I, I read probably 60 days in the Gospel of John, seven chapters at a time. Seven for 60, seven for 60, that's 14, and then to 21. And by the time I had gone through five or six months of that, I, I had the Gospel of John and 1 John in my mind visually. And so I could access it anytime I wanted, and it began to explain itself mm -hmm. to me. The Bible began to explain the Bible. Mm -hmm. Then I would go to a, a shorter book, um, maybe Philippians. Then I would go to a longer book and break up a gospel into sections of five or six chapters. And over about three years, I had gone through the entire New Testament, and so it had begun to explain itself because the Bible is its own best interpreter. Mm -hmm. And if you, when you listen to me preach, you know that I use the Bible to explain the Bible uh, because uh, one of the great theological realities about the Bible is called uh, analogia scriptura. That's Latin for the scripture is analogous to itself. In other words, one author, absolutely consistent, the Bible is its own best explanation. So to master the Bible and to master the accurate explanation of the Bible, you need to know the Bible. So taking it all in that way. At the same time, uh, I, while I was reading repetitiously through the New Testament, I was reading kind of just um, with less intensity through the Old Testament, following the pattern of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, these things happened as examples unto us, so we can use those things to, uh, to provide the, the examples and the patterns uh, that help elucidate the New Testament. But it was repetitious reading. At, at, the, at the same time I was doing that, I started to read theology because I was getting all this Bible but I needed it to be systematized so I started reading the Puritans pretty early um, what was now this is all college years before that seminary seminary probably okay. yeah I started I started reading repetitiously um, in college but it was really seminary when I got serious about reading theology and I I started to read the Puritans for the first time uh, read um, so, uh, some, a friend gave me Stephen Charnock's book on the existence of and attributes of God which you could read for a lifetime uh, which showed me that it was more about God than I could ever even imagine and, um, so I love to read theology once you get the text in your mind then somebody who has pulled it all together systematically is, uh, is, is a real benefit and then the other thing that really fed my devotional life was reading biographies of Christians that God greatly used. Um, I never was much for heroes, I never much for admiring cultural heroes, cultural icons, I really never couldn't care about that. I wanted, to, I wanted examples who fought the good fight, who finished strong, who ended uh, intact, who, who went to the end of their life like Paul and said, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Uh, those are the people I was looking for. So I started reading, like, the biography of John Payton. Um, I started reading the, the, the biography of Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary sent to Burma. I, I read the biography of William Carey. Anybody I could find whose life was a monument to long-term faithfulness. I remember going over to China one time and standing over the grave of a faithful Christian missionary there and just tears running down my face. He never saw anybody come to Christ, but, but he was buried there. I remember reading Henry Martin's story 
uh, went to India and he went to, to a Hindu temple and he, he went in there when he first arrived in India as a missionary, 1800s, and he turned and he wrote in his diary, he ran out of the place and he said, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is to be so dishonored. Well, what kind of a, I mean, how does that get a hold of your heart where you can't even endure existence if Jesus is being dishonored? Um, and he wrote it down. That, that had stuck with me. And I, I remember the story of, of John Payton who, uh, who went to the New Hebrides Islands inhabited by Vanuatu, uh, inhabited by cannibals. Um, missionaries had gone there and been invited to lunch and never come back. Uh, but, John, yeah. but John Payton went there and uh, his wife died as soon as he got there. And he slept on her grave for several nights to keep the natives from digging up the body and eating it. And uh, he stayed there 35 years, and he said, when I came, I heard the cry of cannibals. When I leave, I hear the ringing of church bells. What kind of a life is that? Um, How did those lives take you out of kind of the immediate? Yeah. I mean, you're young. You, that back then, you're, yeah. you're in seminary. Yeah. <laughs> Strike from the record. You were young back then. Got that. Um, but you know that in the same principle today to kind of lift our eyes from the momentary to say right. and that that's something to you know to get connected back right. to a person's life who's so inspirational the culture never interested me I was never interested in the culture I didn't care about the music of the culture I didn't care about the movies of the culture I didn't care about any of it uh, what interested me was lives in the kingdom that had lasting impact because of their faithfulness. Look, I, 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 look when I went to seminary, um, I, I had guys that were going through with me mm -hmm. who crashed and burned within months. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I went to school with a guy who uh, became a bartender, went to school with a guy who graduated from seminary and put up a Buddhist altar in his home, married a Buddhist girl. Uh, I, I, I saw that I, as opposed to that long-term faithfulness. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know how and what are the components of a life that honors Christ to the very end uh, against all odds. Um, I just suggest to you, if you haven't read For the Glory, uh, you guys need to read that, get that book. It's the story of Eric Little from the Olympics to his death in a Japanese concentration camp. It's an incredible, Duncan Hamilton, brilliant, brilliant writer. It's, it's a absolutely scintillating story uh, and, and when he and when he dies at the end it'll break your heart because you will have learned to love him and the profound commitment that he had um, to suffer uh, for the cause of Christ um, triumphantly so those are the kinds of lives that I look for the culture never showed me any of that I never cared about uh, cultural icons even though I was an athlete um, that, that was a way I could express myself, and I could do it fairly well. I could do that better than I could play a violin, so why not? Can you play the violin? No. 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 Just uh, I've heard you sing. I mean, you led us in a song at the well, end of the, yeah, you know, so. I didn't know if you have instruments. And anybody can sing. Well, I, I, grew up play, I grew up playing a little bit of piano and yeah. play, the, play the trumpet. Okay. But there's not a lot of call for trumpet players. So. And yeah, uh, I if there is, I won't be months. one of them, I'll promise yeah. you that. When you think about... At that time, though, you were an athlete who transitioned to, you know, you go to seminary. You have to get real disciplined to be doing everything you're doing. You were in seminary. You got married towards the end of that. Yeah. And on top of all the studying, you know, you have, okay, you want to 
give some time to your wife, you're in ministry, you're preparing for all that. Was it a conscious decision to say, you know what, I need to get disciplined and have on top of my study this time reading biography and this time reading theology? What maybe were some principles that you started applying to even disciplining your life to ignore the passing fads of culture, the temptations to, you know, whatever it was, watch TV, you know, listen to talk radio and say, you know what, if I'm going to really make an impact long term, I need to be disciplined. What were some of those principles that would help any of us here today? Well, you know, in all honesty, uh, I, th I think, I mean, there's a certain natural inclination in me to get things done, mm -hmm. uh, to, to take on whatever is given to me and, and to make sure it gets done. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a problem solver, get it done person. Uh, you have to be. Uh, you you got to prepare. I've been preaching every Sunday for, I don't know, almost 50 years. There are no Monday sermons unless you're speaking here. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you learn that you got to produce and you got to be ready. But I think I learned a lot of that, Adam, and you would understand this because you're a football player too. But I, I think I learned a lot of this from a football coach that I had in, in my college days mm -hmm. who was a relentless disciplinarian mm -hmm. and who tapped into that about me. Um, and it, he pushed me into the role of leadership, not just to be disciplined, but to set the standard for the discipline of the other guys. Mm -hmm. Because it was, I was verbally always kind of the leader. Mm -hmm. That's just, you know, what God wired me with. Uh, but I think that going along with verbal leadership is the life that models what you expect out of the other guy. So I think I learned a ton of that discipline in athletics, uh, and I was involved in a lot of that. And when I got to seminary, it, it, wasn't, the, it wasn't the touchdown anymore. It wasn't the win anymore. It was the love of the truth and that discipline even escalated uh, in seminary. At, at the same time, I was falling in love with Patricia. And um, look, I wanted to be with her more than any other human being. Uh, so I figured out how to do that. Um, you do what you need to do. Um, I think first, first I had to- advice ever. You just figure out what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. First yeah. I had to get her to break her engagement with the guy she was engaged to. No small task. Yeah. And give back the ring and throw away the announcements for the wedding to that guy. That yeah, you're inspiring a new generation of this. Because yeah, yeah. well, never they, say die, guys. Never like, say die. It's not over till it's yeah. over. Yeah. You know, four kids and 15 grandchildren later, it's worked out. <laughs> and justifies the means. I mean, you just look at the result. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, what I was trying to see is everybody today can say, oh, I'm so busy. There's no way I'm wired like you. You're disciplined. You played whatever. But for you to say you had a conviction yeah. at, at a young age to, to not just be consumed with temporary things, but to look, whether it's by way of a biography that inspires you or to look at the long term and say, if I'm going to get there in ministry, I got to start doing some things right today. How, how do you encourage us to do that, to, to take, get convictions over some things yeah. that would drive us? That, that's the word, Adam, very insightful. That is the word, conviction. Uh, a conviction is something you believe so strongly that it drives your life. It's a non-negotiable. It may be a non-negotiable on the positive side for accomplishment. It may be a non-negotiable on the negative side for restraint. Mm -hmm. But that's what you live your convictions. Uh, you have a mass of people today in quote-unquote Christianity, in pop culture, churches, superficial kind of ministries, 
who don't even know what a conviction is. All they're trying to do is figure out how to be cool, mm -hmm. cool with the culture, and the culture will suck your convictions right out of you. You have to be counter-culture. Mm -hmm. You have to be counter-cultural. If you get sucked into the culture thinking this is how you're going to be cool, uh, you will not be a person of conviction. It's something you believe so strongly. If, and if you want to be a leader, mm -hmm. uh, if you want to be a real leader and not send confusing signals, you have to be known for convictions. You have to be. I, I just encourage any of you that uh, may be struggling with this a little bit, if, if you want to lead in the future, get a copy of Al Mohler's book on leadership by conviction. It's the best thing that's been done. He's a man of immense conviction. And what drives him, not only his intellectual brilliance, but he's just a man of absolute conviction. So everything, you, you read his blog or um, any of the stuff he writes, it, it's all clear-cut, crystal clear conviction. That's what makes him such a high-impact leader. There are a lot of people around who want to be cool, dress cool, look cool. Um, they can draw crowds. They can have psychophant followers, but the world moves on the backs of people with strong conviction. So that's what you have to cultivate. And let me say this, you're, you're in the best place for that mm -hmm. right here at this time in your life. Uh, you probably, you guys may have known this, but last Thursday the uh, Wall Street Journal um, did an analysis of colleges and universities, I guess several thousand of them, and they picked the Masters University as number one in schools of choice. I don't, I, I, how in the world did we pop out of two, several thousand universities to get a big picture and a number one ranking school of choice? Uh, I guess the metrics behind that were that this school is what the students think it is when they come here. So that this is, when they get here, they say, yeah, this is what I thought it was. That's, that's integrity. That's not going to happen in a lot of other quote-unquote Christian schools. You think it's a Christian school, but it's not going to work out that way. So the highest commendation that could ever be said of any school is, it is what it says it is. That's integrity. And this is the place where you're going to see uh, faculty around you, student life people around you, administration, friends, peer group, mm -hmm. and even chapel speakers help develop those convictions that'll make you a rock, mm -hmm. not only in your own life, but for those around you. And, you know, along with the idea that you bring up of, you know, you come to a place and you stay there, like this university, because it is what you thought it was, I see the parallel to um, finding a good local church you know, where you say, I want to find a local church that is convictionally driven. That's and right. as we talk about the theme, Christ is all, and, and we take that and say, when you're looking for a church, is maybe somebody's out here still trying to find a church. They, they're at school, a freshman. Maybe they've been here a few years and they haven't found it. What, are they, what should they look for to find a, and we'll use this phrase, Christ-centered church in the sense that he's the center of the worship? What would be some of the convictions that church would be able to express that a student could say, that is where Christ is being worshipped. I mean, be, be, to be real sort of foundational, look at the doctrinal statement. Do they have a doctrinal statement? Do they actually have a written statement of convictions? Um, is Christ 
Is God exalted? A way, to, a way to approach the answer to that question is to go back to the, the disciples' prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is God's will going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Where is that going to happen? Well, let's back up from that. What's God's... What's God's will? What's going on in heaven? I can tell you what's going on in heaven. You can read it, Revelation 4 and 5. God is being exalted. Christ is being exalted. And purity is pervasive. Right? That's heaven. God is exalted. Christ is exalted. The whole place is full of praise and full of purity. So that's what you're looking for. If you want that on earth, that's what a church should be. God exalting, Christ exalting, pursuing purity and filled with praise and worship. It's not about style. It's about worship in spirit and truth. So get past the style of it. That's an immature approach. Get to a mature approach where there are sound doctrine. Christ is exalted. God is glorified. Worship is a priority. And the pursuit of purity is everybody's objective. Uh, find a church like that. Um, that's, that's not only the right place, but that's, that's a blessed place to be. And along with finding the church that sh displays that in its worship and, and Christ is the center, uh, we've been talking in recent weeks, the Bible faculty series about uh, ministering to others, particularly as its emphasis in ministering to younger pe people, high school students potentially. Uh, how would you encourage the students here of not only just finding that local church, but serving in it. I know, yeah. you know, you know they're busy, you know they've got work here going on, but maybe the benefit that you saw in your life, what starting to do student ministry or any kind of ministry, yeah. children's ministry, just finding a way to serve in a church that set a trajectory for you to always have that as a priority. Well, look, I, I've always known that um, every believer has spiritual gifts, and we're all called to the one another's. And we're all responsible to love one another, teach one another, pray for one another, build up one another, edify one another, all that. I, I couldn't, I never saw life as somehow possible without ministry. So um, when, uh, when I was a student in, in uh, my university days, uh, I, was, I was out at almost every weekend preaching somewhere. Um, it was pretty brutal in the early years, you know. Um, Is that a, you you were just availing yourself to churches to preach at, or were you just showing oh, up yeah, on the corner and preaching? Yeah, I just made myself preaching? available, and if you needed somebody to preach, okay. I would come, and there, was, there were a lot of uh, very compassionate people who were willing to suffer through. There's uh, a time for an assignment. You actually had to go to, like, a bus station or somewhere oh, yeah. and just yeah. stand up and start preaching? Right. Yeah. How'd that go? Uh, not, not really good, no. Um, <laughs> you know, preaching hellfire and damnation at a bus depot, screaming at people. It was an indoor greyhound place was both offensive and stupid. Mm. Uh, but you learned from it. Well, I learned to sh stop yelling and just go talk to people on a personal yeah. level. Um, yeah, and I, I did some street preaching. Um, there were, you know, my culture was a little different, you know, in, in the prior. Um, the 90s. Yeah, the nine, no. <laughs> but anyway, you could get away with a little more of that than you can today. But no, I always viewed ministry that way. I remember when I was in, uh, in my college days, and I have these vivid memories of, and you would know this, you play a football game on Saturday, and I taught college Bible study in my dad's church every Sunday morning. 
and we'd come back from wherever we were late on a Saturday night, and you know how you are, you know, and for some of us, we played 60 minutes virtually. It was Yeah, some of, some of us played 60 minutes. Yes. Well, you're pounded into pulp. Some of us, six, so, <laughs> but I so get the idea. Come back on yeah. Sunday morning and get up, and you're battered and bruised mm -hmm. and achy, and, but it was always mm -hmm. a priority for me uh, to, to have a ministry. Uh, I couldn't view my Christian life uh, without that because I just felt that's part of it. I mean, you heard what Dr. Mays said, he, he, you know, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. And, you know, like you said, Nita, three sentences, and she's an, into the gospel. <laughs> I know that about her. And what are we here for? What are we here for? Are we here? Do we think we're here just to absorb the culture and, you know, find some place of calm? Uh, no, we're here to, to proclaim the truth. So I, I guess uh, but it's not always easy. I mean, you know, it, it takes preparation. But I always viewed life that way. And I, I think it's a mistake if you're here and just going to a church and not making yourself available for a ministry to whatever level you can do that. That's where you're going to be spending your life. Um, I think this is the time to cultivate that and get in a good church where... There are people who minister effectively. One of the things I worry about, uh, this is kind of an interesting thing, uh, there are a lot of big mega churches that don't have um, what we used to call Sunday school or Bible classes or fellowship groups or whatever they call them. And the reason they don't have those is because the pastor is not particularly a Bible teacher, so you, he doesn't produce any Bible teachers. So who would teach? Um, People tend to become what their leaders model. And if you're just a cool dude, then you're going to have a lot of cool dudes, but who's going to teach the book of Revelation? Who's going to teach Ezekiel? So um, there are churches, however, though, that are committed to the Word of God, and they're always looking for people who want to come alongside. And I started in the junior department with uh, fifth and sixth grade kids and a little circle of about eight, 10 or 12 kids and just teaching them the Bible. And... Uh, started realizing that even at that level, I, I had to be able to answer their questions. And um, then I went to, started from there, I went to junior high. I used to go to Hume Lake every summer and speak at junior high camp, which is really challenging. Um, you know, this would be like seven, eight, nine weeks in a row of junior high kids all week long. And a Preaching new batch. Every night? Every night. Yeah. Every night. And the, the thing I like about junior high kids, if they're not interested, they have the courtesy to talk. So you never guess, that, you don't yeah. have to guess whether they're interested because they just start talking. Yeah, this is a good audience. They, they lock in, but you they don't do, really know what no. they're thinking. Junior high kids, yeah. crawling speaking, under the chairs. Yeah, at least well, speaking to adults is a pain because they just stare into space. You don't know whether they're interested or not. But. <laughs> it sounds like we, <laughs> it, whenever you were talking about a church that has a leader that replicates himself into leaders underneath himself and uh, teachers in the church. Sounds to me like finding discipleship in a local yeah, church. Absolutely. How key is that, that while a student's here, they're, they're building those Paul-Timothy relationships. When you see you know, a young person saying, hey, one, I want to look for somebody to disciple me, but then, like in your case, you started with, I'm going to pour into some fifth graders, and then it moved yeah. up to junior high. How vital is personal discipleship well, again, in your life. again, you know, you have those dynamic relationships here. And, and look, we, we do surveys. We know what you all 
love about this place, and predominantly it's peer, peer relations, and then it's faculty relations. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what makes this thing what it is. But the church is the place long-term where you're going to live out your Christian life, and I've always encouraged people, look, find somebody who knows less than you and teach them what you know. Find somebody who knows more than you and sit at their feet. And that's how life in the church should always go. Um, that, that's, that's what makes the Christian life so rich, is the contribution you make and uh, the investment somebody makes in your life. When it comes to um, evangelism, you know, coming up this week or next week, there's outreach week. Students will be out. You mentioned there can be a fear to, you know, approaching somebody and, and what do you say, and you learn the hard way sometimes. But when they're going out in a few weeks and doing that or anytime they're evangelizing, uh, in your experience, how, would, how did you harmonize? You, you're speaking to this person and, you know, in one part of your mind you're thinking, Christ freely offers the gospel. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, Matthew eleven twenty eight, And then... Luke 14, here's the cost. It costs you everything. Relationships, pick up your cross and follow me. It, it's, it's not that those are opposed, but you have to harmonize those. Any advice for a student that's going out and they, they, they have a burden to freely offer the gospel, but they also want to be realistic with them about mm -hmm. this costs you everything? Yeah, I think, I think it's harder sometimes to really be confrontive with the gospel with the people you know well, because you know the price. Mm -hmm. With a stranger, you don't really care because you don't have a relationship to start with. So what you, you, can't, you can't destroy one because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So starting with that point, how, how would I in, sort of begin that conversation? Um, I, I try to cut to the chase um, and talk about sin. Um, might say, um, Somebody say, what, what, do you, what do you do? I say, I, uh, I, I tell people that um, all their sins can be forgiven and they can receive eternal life in heaven forever. Would you be interested in that? Hmm. Now, that's the question. Because if he's not interested in that, then all the rest is pointless. I, I was sitting on a flight, and <laughs> this guy sat down. Uh, he had everything on his body pierced with something, uh, my kind of guy. And uh, <laughs> he sits down, but he was really kind of a, kind of a winsome guy, and with, uh, obviously a drug guy. And I said that to him. This was a cross-country flight. I said that to him somewhere leaving New York City. And he looked over at me and said, could you excuse me? And I said, sure. He never came back. So I knew he you was just not. just had that opening line about. Yeah, I just said, uh, I tell people um, that, that they can have all their sins forgiven and receive eternal life uh, forever with God in heaven. Never saw him again. I don't know where he went. It was a big airplane. And he never came back. Um, look, there's no way around that. Salvation is about sin and hell and judgment and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the issue. And when you, when you evangelize, I think you can approach people, not with a threatening approach, but do you have any interest in having all your sins forgiven forever? What, what an amazing gift. Do you have any interest in that? Because now you're at the issue. 
right? You're not somewhere else. You're at the issue. Salvation's about forgiveness. not about purpose in life. It's not about happiness. It's not about fulfillment. It's about forgiveness. Then, then the conversation has to go to, well, do I need forgiveness? And now you're right where you want to be. So uh, it doesn't have to be as daunting. Um, you, you need to be a little bit sensitive, you know, uh, in how you uh, handle it. But I think if you offer the gift of forgiveness, listen, everybody knows they're sinful. The conscience, their consciences are screaming at them. We, as, as in evangelism, we have one ally in the unregenerate heart, and that ally is the law of God that whips their conscience. Romans 2 says the law of God is written in every heart, and the conscience accuses them. They're all living with an accusing conscience. That is the ally in the unregenerate heart. So you have to go at that accusing conscience based upon the law of God written in the heart that they live in violation of. And so forgiveness is, is huge. I mean, you have, um, you have people today uh, killing themselves. I read the other day, transgender people kill themselves 19 times more than the rest of the population. I mean, they are living with massive, massive guilt, chaotic guilt. There's no such thing as a transgender person, but once you've created that kind of reality or unreality in your mind, the, the horrors of it. So that's why I think if you approach people on the basis of forgiveness and show them God's forgiveness provided in Christ, then it's a question of do you have any interest in being completely forgiven? You're right where you need to be. And it's a great lesson of the using an, a question to get to that rather than a declarative statement of like you're using, offering them a gift. Yeah. So hopefully that was helpful for everybody heading out to outreach week next week or just in general discipleship and evangelism in the church, outside the church. Uh, before we wrap up this time, I uh, wanted to give you a chance to, as you look at um, Masters University, excited for the future, what most excites you about the changes happening here? Well, it's, it's unbelievable. Again, I go back to that Wall Street thing. How in the world do we get a picture in, in the Wall Street Journal? How, how do they pop us out of the crowd and give us the best award you could possibly be given, and that is that the students who come here say it's absolutely the right choice. That's, you, you couldn't buy that for millions and millions of dollars. Um, the world gets it. They know what we've got going here. We want to be the best that we can possibly be. I'm so thankful. I, I will tell you this. Uh, we have the finest faculty on the planet, bar none. Uh, they are the best, and they are a gift from God to us. Um, we, we are profoundly grateful. They are the school. They, 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 it's the faculty. Uh, that's why you're here, to learn from them. Um, we are tremendously blessed, and we're going to continue to increase the richness of our faculty, uh, bringing in more and more people who are consistent with what we want to accomplish here. So I'm thrilled about that. Along the way, we need to do some things better. Mm -hmm. We've tried to beef up some of our marketing uh, because everybody knows that the story needs to be told. We're the best kept secret around. Mm -hmm. um, we just want to do everything well. I know that while I've been gone, I've been away for a week or so, there's been some kind of talk around about the bookstore, and I don't know what, what's been floating around, but just so you all know, um, 
we're going to kind of shut the bookstore down in the middle of October for a few weeks to redo it, to turn it into the finest university bookstore there is with all the right resources um, to provide everything that we need to see the spiritual development, leadership development of our student body. We're going to feature our faculty and their writings there, and uh, we're going to have everything that you need to be a strong believer. We're going to have all kinds of things there that are going to um, minister in, into your life. It just, it needs to be at the same high level of excellence that everything else around here already is. It needs to reflect our theology. It, it, it doesn't need to be clinical. It needs to be upbeat, positive, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, spiritually dynamic, powerful resources, as well as some fun stuff along the way. Uh, uh, but, but it's just going to be a premier reflection of our faculty and our doctrinal commitment. We're going to put the, the stuff in there that's going to make the biggest impact on the lives of our students and everybody else who comes through the door. We're very, very excited about being able to do that. But that's just part of what we want to do through, throughout our school on every level. We, we're thankful for all the people who serve here and the excellence with which they serve. And uh, when we find something that we think can be better, we just want to make it better. One last piece, you know, the um, election is on a lot of students' minds. We have an event coming up. Uh, if you want to talk a little bit about that, students would be invited to attend it. Yeah, we're, we're going to start a summit series um, here uh, that's going to be ongoing. It could be a summit on all kinds of things. The first one's going to be a summit on the election coming up because everybody's talking about it. Um, it's going to involve uh, Dr. Fraser and Dr. Stead, our resident gurus in political science and Soren Kern, uh, who has taught here and is a, a remarkable guy on an international level, graduate of Georgetown, and uh, he, um, he's a world expert on Islam, traveled in the Middle East, and uh, it's, it's gonna be a dynamic opportunity for us to expose ourselves to the community. We're, we're, t we're putting a billboard up now, I think, on Newhall Avenue, and that billboard's gonna continue to s cycle things that we want people to know about here. Uh, I think, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but I think uh, we've just gotten this started. I think something like 250 people have already signed up to come to this from the community. Hmm. And um, we, we want, look, we want people to know the truth. So we call it Truth Matters. But we're going to tell you the truth, the truth about society, the truth about whatever. Uh, this, isn't, this, isn't a, this isn't sort of a... a party thing at all, although we all lean toward a free enterprise, capitalistic, um, small government, um, individual responsibility approach to society because that's biblical. That's biblical. You don't eat if you don't work. That's biblical. So, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is to engage the community with a biblical understanding of the issues. Um, Look, 60 million babies, 60 million babies aborted in a year. That is a massacre. That is an absolute massacre. Any candidate that advocates that is unworthy of any responsibility. And I'm not saying that there aren't issues with candidates on other fronts, but killing infants in the womb, the safest place that a ch child could ever be, um, 
it, it is, it's a frightening, frightening thing. Why, why are we, how could you possibly be elected to an office, a high, the highest office in the land, if you advocate the slaughter of children in the womb? Just for one thing. Um, I'll tell you just another thing. This is kind of a preview of that event. The most devastating thing that ever happened to society is confusion about gender. That's the end of civilization. That is absolutely the end of civilization. It is over. You might as well torch the planet. Everything's gone, man. Everything's gone. Femininity's gone. Masculinity's gone. Fatherhood's gone. Motherhood's gone. Family's gone. Everything's gone. And God's design, one man, one woman, for life, raise children, raise them in discipline, raise them to be sociable, functioning, productive. You wipe out gender, you have totally destroyed society. Anybody who advocates that is advocating the absolute destruction of, of human society. So th these are not small things. Uh, this, is not, this is not economics. This is an all-out assault on the creator who gives life on, on the order that God has established between a man and a woman in marriage. The Bible even says in 1 Corinthians, act like men. Wow. And it's saying that to everybody. Well, if, if you do that on a college campus today, act like a man, you, you're, you would be in deep trouble. Duke just... Duke University just um, launched a new effort to downgrade toxic masculinity. Downgrade toxic masculinity. I don't think it reached the football team yet. <laughs> but Clearly not. So they're having seminars all over the campus to help men realize that they need to be more sensitive to women. The destruction of masculinity uh, you can't calculate the damage. This is serious stuff. So these are the kinds of issues that people need to know about. So these are the kind of things we want to talk to them about, and then uh, in the future do some more of these summits because we've got, we've got the people don't know this place for what it really is. We have the answers, right, because we have the Word of God. We're just going to make the world kind of show up and find that out. We're excited for that. That's Wednesday, November 2nd, I think is the date for it. Yeah. Looking at, and... Um, I just know the day before. Hey, by the way, the Sunday night, if well, you The day before is also big. It's the UCLA versus Masters Mustangs game. Oh, so that's a bigger that's event. That's going to be yeah, a big one. Back-to-back -back yeah. yeah. mega events. I got, I got courtside seats for that. Um, I'll, I'll take one, too. Sunday night at Grace Church, the Gettys are doing a concert. Okay. Come on down. Free. It's a free concert. Yeah, and it's a free concert. That free tagline on a college event's key. Huh? Free. When you add that free to free, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, would you pray for our students and faculty sure. before we wrap up today? Thank you for yep. coming. Father, thank you for this incredible work that you've done here at Masters University. Thank you for all these precious, precious students that you have brought. They're here, like Esther, for such a time as this. And just pray, Lord, that you'll fulfill all your good pleasure in every life. Bless them, protect them, 
Um, may they love the Lord Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may they be useful. May they find friendships and life partners and careers and opportunities and ministries. May it all begin to come together here for them. And, and may the future be full of blessing and the experience of usefulness until we all see you face to face. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.